who finds himself drowning in a bucket of cream has two choices. Drown or fight so hard he churns that cream into butter. Jimmy Graham goes down And simply climbs out. Gentlemen, welcome to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Kenningson. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and before the uh, break, uh, we were talking about uh, NATO and the Atlantic Council. If you missed any of that, um, that was an interesting segment. And of course, uh, F. William Angdahl, the author and geopolitical analyst, before that, talking about financial terrorism. Well, there's all sorts of types of financial terrorism, and one of the financial terrorist activities uh, happens to be in the unconventional energy sector. And our next guest has been on the front lines of this issue now for, uh, um, I don't know, probably going on, I would say, five years. Uh, He has been on the front lines, and this issue of fracking, a lot of people will know it, the unconventional gas uh, industry fracking. By the way, there's a film up on our website right now. The featured documentary this week is Voices from the Gas Field. This is a film by our next guest, Ian R. Crane, who's joining us on the live link from a field somewhere uh, in the UK. Hello, Ian. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm good, Ian. I'm good. And uh, we're very proud to present your film uh, up on, the, on our site for this week's documentary. Uh, it's a great film. Uh, but uh, uh, Ian, I, I, I was watching this film, and I know you produced this a couple years ago. And uh, at, right at the end of the film, one of the last things you said in this film was, um, <clears throat> it starts with one well, or something to that effect. Uh, and if, if, you know, it just takes one well. And you've been fighting that one well in the UK now for a few years, and with some success. Uh, but I know the forces of of uh, the forces of nature um, are are pushing hard against um, your effort and and other activists that are trying to save the UK environment from this very uh, let's say not a clean industry is the best way to put it. But uh, how how is well? First of all, how are you doing? And uh, and we're also looking at this new UK ruling, which uh, doesn't look good. But uh, I think you might have another spin on that for us, Ian. Well, Patrick, um, yeah, there's a number of questions there. I mean, it, I've actually been on this specific campaign now for uh, a little over six years. Um, I actually, I was really first became concerned about the unconventional hydrocarbons industry. Um, when I was in Australia and I was doing a tour of Australia, um, actually, I was there speaking about the Australian economy. Um, but in 2011, when I went uh, speaking in Brisbane, um, a number of people made comment and observation about the problems that were arising in the on the Darling Downs. Now, at, at the time, the 
uh, unconventional gas industry in Australia was just a little over five years old and already the problems were starting to to manifest. Now, unfortunately, I didn't get an opportunity to uh, go into the gas fields, but nonetheless, the um, um, the accounts that I was hearing gave me some some serious cause for concern. So when I came back to the UK and I you know did a little bit of uh, investigation and, of course, um, um, we at the time also were at a, uh, a stage of a moratorium and that was due to Quadrilla uh, fracking a well at Priest Hall um, uh, just outside Blackpool and uh, in the process they managed to trigger a number of seismic events, two of which were quite considerable uh, by UK standards and, and so the British government put a moratorium uh, in place and I thought well you know hey thankfully hopefully that's that um, and, and to be honest, I really didn't think too much more about fracking um, in the UK or anywhere else uh, at that time. But when I came back from Australia, uh, which was about three months after the moratorium had been put in place in the UK, I really started to you know, do a little bit of research and take a look at what was happening in the US and uh, some of the problems that were, concern, uh, were occurring in the US. And I had the opportunity to go back to Australia in 2012. And again, I was um, speaking on other subjects, but I was also invited to um, uh, speak at a couple of events up in Queensland and to talk specifically about um, uh, the hydrocarbons industry. And, and the reason I was asked to do that is because I had recently done a tour at the time in Ireland called the, the Pillage of Ireland's Resources, where I was talking about how basically the Irish economy had been deliberately collapsed. And part of that was to gain access to Ireland's phenomenal offshore um, oil and gas resources, which have yet to be exploited in any big way. The, um, the, the Corrib gas field is being exploited, but there's a lot more that isn't. Um, anyway, I, um, having basically come back from Australia, and this time I did take the opportunity to go up into the gas fields, and while I was being shown around the gas fields and, uh, you know, what I saw certainly wasn't pretty and the accounts I was hearing from farmers uh, were deeply concerning about the, you know, the, the loss of water pressure from their boreholes, um, uh, contamination uh, of the water, particularly heavy metals in the, in the water supply, uh, causing crop failures, causing um, animal uh, illnesses and deaths. And I actually made the observation, you know, I said, Sarah, thank God we've got a moratorium in place in the UK. But that came back to bite me a bit because within a week of landing back in the UK from that tour, the moratorium was lifted. And so I literally cancelled all the plans I had for 2013. And I put together a 63 date tour of the country um, to literally try and raise awareness, to stimulate curiosity and get the the term um, uh, hydraulic fracturing, fracking into the sort of vocabulary of, um, of people who you know, hadn't yet perhaps uh, come across this industry. So uh, I knew that I had to finish that tour by mid-July because I anticipated that Quadrilla were going to go back to Balkham in, uh, in Sussex uh, because they had basically indicated they wanted a flow test, a well that they had uh, uh, that they wanted to drill a well and then flow test it before their planning um, expired in in uh, September. Well, fortunately, over the last uh, six years, 
the anti-fracking community in the UK has become the fastest growing social movement that this country has seen in a long time, um, possibly since the advent of poll tax in the days of, of Margaret Thatcher. But there's something absolutely unique about this social movement, uh, Patrick, and that is that it has absolutely no hierarchy, no structure. There is no national anti-fracking organization. Um, it, it, and that, this is very deliberate. It, it's a um, morass of uh, independent, autonomous anti-fracking groups based in communities all around the country, many of whom, of course, are in the areas that are targeted for unconventional hydrocarbon exploitation, but many are not. In fact, there was a big rally in Totnes at the weekend in uh, South Devon, and South Devon certainly is not targeted and will never be targeted for unconventional hydrocarbons. But nonetheless, the people of Totnes are very concerned about um, you know, what this industry uh, will bring. So, um, you know, no NGO, no, uh, no hierarchy, uh, no leadership per se. The, the movement, the campaign is based on everybody doing whatever it is they feel they can or want to do to help raise awareness of the um, uh, dangers associated with this industry, the health hazards associated with this industry, and, and encourage other people to do the same. And consequently, neither the British government or the industry knows where the next challenge is, uh, is coming from. And um, we have managed to keep this country frack-free since that moratorium was lifted back in... Um, uh, December 2012. But as you have uh, alluded to in your opening comments, um, we are on the cusp of the first frack since then. And ironically, this is also Quadrilla. So it's the same company that uh, caused the moratorium to be put in place um, uh, seven years ago. Um, and they are in an area just to the north of Priest Hall, they're in an area just outside Blackpool um, that's known as Preston New Road. And obviously they, they have been on this location since January of 2017. Now their, their original planning application said that it was going to take three months to um, build the pad and then three months to drill the well. And then shortly after that, they would be uh, gearing up to start the first frack. Well, so here they are now, 21 months into a six-month project, and they're just now about to, or they, they claim, about to frack. Now, um, they were originally scheduled to frack last week, but um, uh, a couple of people from within the anti-fracking community had been doing a lot of work regarding evacuation plans and um, um, emergency response plans, in the area and and frankly they were pretty disturbed by what they discovered and so they sought a high court injunction to prevent quadrilla from firing up the frack pumps uh, pending a review of the emergency procedures well unfortunately on friday at uh, noon um judge supperstone uh, determined that having heard evidence from both sides the previous day, there wasn't sufficient to 
maintain the injunction. And so effectively, he gave Quadrilla the sanction to, uh, to go ahead and uh, start the, the frack. Now, Quadrilla claimed they were going to do it on Saturday. Uh, but you said the forces of nature were working against us. Well, right now, the forces of nature seem to be working with us because uh, this storm that is sweeping across the western side of, of the UK uh, appears to have caused Quadrilla sufficient concern. So they've decided, or they have announced, they're going to delay firing up the pumps until the, the storm is, is passed. Um, but, hey, anything, anything can happen. Um, you know, my, my gut feel, my intuition, if you like, Patrick, says that actually this industry not only is never going to get a, a real foothold in the UK, but we may be on the cusp of actually um, seeing the British government, the Tory party, who are the only party that support fracking, uh, we may find that literally within the next uh, few months um, they pull the plug on unconventional gas exploration and exploitation in the UK because they know very, very well that as they move towards the next general election, whenever that might be, um, the uh, push for fracking in the UK may well, well, in my opinion, it will, but I mean, it will be a very, very significant um, vote loser for them as more and more people start to comprehend the full implications of this industry if it rocks up in their backyard. Uh, Ian, do you think that the Labour Party, or the, say, if it's the Jeremy Corbyn uh, uh, crowd, is this going to be a, a potential election issue if there is a general election? Will fracking make it onto, onto the agenda uh, with oh, Labour? Without any, without any shadow of doubt. Now, Jeremy Corbyn has stated, as, um, as uh, pretty much uh, everybody in the Labour Party has stated, is that uh, you know if they do get into office, then one of the first things that they will do is shut down unconventional hydrocarbon exploration in the UK. My concern would be that if the next election isn't until 2022, if, and it's a massive if, if this industry does get a foothold over the next uh, three years, um, then you know Jeremy Corbyn may find it a little bit more difficult to, to pull the plug on an industry that is that is up and running as opposed to pulling the plug on an industry that you know really um, is barely off the starting blocks. So there's no question that the um, momentum of the anti-fracking campaign in the in the UK will continue to gather pace mm -hmm. until such time as um, either the Tory party pull the plug on it, the industry pulls the plug on it because they decide well it's not really that viable anyway. Um, or if Jeremy Corbyn does get into office, let's, um, you know, and it does get a foothold, let's hope he's, uh, he's true to his word. But I think that, you know, the concern I have, and I mean, I've made this observation elsewhere, the only reason I want to see Jeremy Corbyn in, in number 10 is so that all those people who think that Jeremy Corbyn is the political saviour that they're all craving for, um, that once he actually gets into number 10, it's, it'll be business as usual, because Jeremy Corbyn, despite 35 years or so in, as a parliamentarian, will very quickly realise how little 
authority, how little autonomy he really has as prime minister. I mean, it, in in the UK, it's little more than a figurehead role. I mean, it's the circus. You know, the real the real uh, control in this country is uh, obviously the city. And uh, so obviously it's the, the financiers and then the civil servants who uh, work very closely with the city. Um, but increasingly, it's the corporatists. It's the global corporatists, um, you know, who are literally um, and, and this really is driven by the Koch brothers in the US. And, uh, you know, it, it's now um, from a, a philosophy that was developed in the, the late 20th century. It's now being implemented uh, throughout the Western world. And, and this is the deliberate dismantling of parliamentary democracy in favour of the global corporatists. So the parliamentarians are effectively in absolute hock to the, the corporations. And we see this, a classic example of this in the UK is Jim Ratcliffe. Uh, who is the owner and the chairman, chief executive officer of Ineos. And, you know, Ineos is a, is a company that he's built up over the last 20 sort of, odd years, uh, buying up stranded assets from um, the likes of BP, Shell, um, and the various chemical firms, ICI, Bayer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, through sort of stripping them out, um, he's, he's turned it into, uh, you know, an incredibly profitable business um but Ineos is also a major producer of plastics and uh, because of that he needs ethane Ineos needs ethane and ethane is one of the core components of fracked gas mm -hmm. so at the moment uh, Jim Ratcliffe is uh, shipping fracked gas across the Atlantic um in a fleet of uh, dragon ships as they're as they're known um, which were built to his specification in China. So this is a virtual pipeline, basically, um, from the US to Grangemouth to bring in the ethane that uh, you know, they then use, obviously, in the uh, manufacture of uh, plastics. But Jim Ratcliffe, I mean, he is listed as Britain's wealthiest man. His, his wealth, his personal wealth, was listed as twenty-one billion pounds in the Times Rich List earlier this year, um, but he is shortly after that. By the way, he relocated himself to uh, to Monaco because I guess one of the downsides of being identified as Britain's richest man is that Her Majesty's revenue collection um, take a, a bit more interest. So uh, he decided that you know perhaps he was better off in uh, in Monaco. So he and the other two um, uh, major shareholders in Ineos, I believe they've all decamped to, uh, to Monaco. But Ratcliffe wields enormous power. I mean, obviously, he has professional lobbyists working to manipulate government policy, but he's not beyond making direct approaches uh, himself. And, and, you know, this is... Now, what we are um, we are starting to experience in the UK, um, um, just as the US has been experienced for the last sort of 20, 25 years or so, and that is that you know the um, charade of parliamentary democracy 
is is rapidly falling away. And if we look at you know what's happened in the the Blackpool area where Quadrilla are looking to frack as soon as the wind dies down, um, back in 2015, Quadrilla had their application to establish two well sites uh, in the Blackpool area. One at Preston New Road, where which is an existing site now, and another one a few miles to the north at a place called Rossica. And Lancashire County Council, having um, done their own research, their own investigation, um, when it came to the planning committee, despite the planning officer, who is a full-time professional on the council, despite him recommending that the planning committee approve the plans for Quadrilla to frack at uh, Preston Road and Rossica, the council rejected it. And, of course, there was massive celebration from people all around the, uh, the north of England and, of course, right across the whole of the anti-fracking community in the UK. Uh, but, of course, it wasn't over because Quadrilla appealed that decision. That appeal was heard by a planning inspector. But uh, at the time, the minister, the government minister that was responsible for the ultimate decision as to whether or not um, the Lancashire County Council decision should be overturned was Sai Javid when he was the uh, communities minister. He's home secretary now, but back then he was the communities minister. And he instructed the planning inspector not to announce his decision, but to forward his recommendations directly to Sai Javid so that the minister could make the decision. So we don't actually know what the recommendation the planning inspector was but what we do know was that the planning inspector certainly recommended that the Rossica um, application uh, should not be granted. So Sai Javid announced that he was effectively overturning Lancashire County Council's decision to reject Quadrilla's application to Fracker Preston New Road and he was going to give them permission to uh, uh, to do so um, now just to put in perspective Sai Javid is not a career politician in fact up until 2010 when he entered parliament he was uh, a very senior manager within Deutsche Bank so he is a career bankster mm-hmm. and he was put into parliament to drive the bankster agenda within the political process mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he has been doing here. So um, you can imagine the people of Lancashire were extremely upset and extremely frustrated that local democracy had been absolutely ridden roughshod over. So, you know, when the Tories say, you know, yeah, we want localism, we want decisions made at the lowest possible level, what they really mean (laughs) is, yeah, we want decisions made at the lowest possible level, but we are only prepared to do this if you make the right decision. (laughs) Because if you make the wrong decision, then I'm sorry, but we're going to come in and override it. Yeah, sounds a lot like Brussels, actually, with its uh, vassal states. But uh, so so Preston New Road, this is really significant, this story, Ian, because uh, for the first time, well, in a long time, let's say since 1932, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, peaceful, mounting a peaceful protest or peaceful environmental protest was deemed by the judge uh, as a criminal act. 
uh, and jail sentences were handed down to three activists who you know uh, recently. But it's also come to light, Ian, in the last couple of days that the judge who rendered that decision uh, has uh, family connections to the, wait for it, the fracking industry. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, maybe let's sort of take a look at a little bit of the history at Preston Road because um, uh, Quadrilla moved onto the site, onto the field to start the pad construction uh, in the first week of January 2017. And despite um, um, a, a lot of talk within the local community there about to slow them down that really didn't happen and there's a massive story behind that which um, we'll have to wait a while to be told but the bottom line is one of the um, primary activists within the Lancashire area was compromised by Quadrilla and effectively in return for not pursuing her for £55,000 court costs she was effectively persuaded to assist quadrilla in managing the opposition and um for the first few weeks uh, she was able to literally manage the opposition to um simply stopping the trucks entering the site for 15 minutes and of course this is no opposition at all because anything that is is done in agreement with the company obviously isn't causing them any problems they simply program it into their schedule so actually um the initiative was taken by people in yorkshire at the kirby misbeton protection camp to initiate the first lock-on and the first four-man lock-on um, uh, occurred, I think it was on January 31st of 2017. And, and, and this was the start. So from this point forward, uh, you know, the opposition, uh, the controlled opposition was doing 15 minute stops of trucks and, um, the, uh, how should I say the more independent opposition was basically doing whatever it was they felt they, they could do to delay and blockade the entrance as long as possible. Now, this caused Quadrilla to seek a, an injunction, um, and uh, this was an injunction they saw in March of 2017, and what they were trying to do was restrict the protest to a pen, literally about the size of a tennis court, that was behind a hedge in a field where nobody could see it, and uh, I and uh, a few others got together and we challenged that injunction. And I'm pleased to say that Judge Rayner threw the application to restrict the protest to, uh, to a protest pen uh, right out of court. So it still meant that, you know, the, the protesters uh, were able to do whatever it was they felt they wanted to do or able to do uh, on Preston Road. And... Um, to roll the clock forward, up until July of this year, there had been something in the region of about 360 arrests at Preston Road. And, of course, four of those arrests were back in July of 2017. And these were the guys who surfed the fleet of vehicles um, going into Preston Road. And uh, collectively, they were on these trucks for just a tad under 100 hours. I think it was about 99 hours and 10 minutes or something. And at the time, I made the observation that I sensed that they were being left on top of the trucks deliberately to create the opportunity to up 
the uh, penalties because um, you know, protest is normally dealt with under such legislation or statutes as obstructing the highway, obstructing a police officer. There's been a few attempts at uh, using some trade union and labour relations legislation. But the bottom line is none of these offences are custodial. They are they are offences that um, carry a maximum penalty up to of up to a fine of up to a thousand pounds. So you know when people did participate in non-violent direct action, they they knew that there was a risk of you know potentially significant financial penalty, but no loss of uh, liberty. Well, roll the clock forward. These uh, four uh, men who climbed on tops of the trucks last July, uh, they were charged with public nuisance. Now, public nuisance does carry a custodial sentence. And so I, I sensed, obviously, that you know, this was what it was being lined up for. And, and sure enough, <clears throat> when it came to court uh, a few weeks ago, Judge Robert Altham um, uh, heard the evidence from both sides, uh, decided that he was going to um, uh, consider the sentence overnight and uh, past sentence following morning. Now, my supposition is that, uh, you know, he probably got some instruction from elsewhere um, and was told that, you know, under no circumstances do you let these guys walk. You know, we need to set the example. We need these guys to be jailed. So one of the four guys who actually had pleaded guilty, he was uh, given a suspended sentence. But the other three who had pleaded not guilty, and uh, obviously um, were, you know, attempting to explain and justify their action on the basis of stopping the greater crime, i.e., you know, the crime against humanity that uh, I think anybody who has studied the impact of, of fracking will agree that it, it is a massive, you know, crime against humanity and, uh, you know, crime against the environment. But the judge decided that he was going to sentence the other three to 15 and 16 months in jail. Not suspended, so jail sentence, custodial sentences starting immediately. Well, there's a few things that, you know, immediately came to light about Judge Robert Altham. And over the last few years, he has presided over a number of uh, paedophilia uh, trials. And with um, one exception, uh, he has basically let all of the other uh, paedophiles who have been found guilty walk out of the court with suspended sentences. And uh, the one exception was really quite an extreme case of uh, paedophilia and child abuse. And uh, he, he gave that particular individual a sentence of 15 months. So what Judge Altham has basically uh, stated with this sentence is that nonviolent direct action, peaceful protest against fracking is regarded by the judiciary as equal to extreme paedophilia. Wow. And, and, you, and you are absolutely correct in your other observation that he has links with the oil and gas industry, not specifically with uh, with fracking, but uh, the family run a um, oil and gas uh, chandlery shipping business and, and transport business. And uh, and his sister 
is a declared pro-fracker. And uh, there's no question that Robert Altham should have recused himself from this case right from the get-go. Sure. And, uh, you know, now, of course, there are calls mounting, one for the sentences to be reviewed as soon as possible. I mean, obviously, an appeal is in the process of being submitted. But, you know, there are a number of um, calls from uh, parliamentarians and uh, various uh, NGOs calling to uh, to review the, the sentencing. There's been a number of protests. A week ago, there was a protest actually in Preston uh, that, uh, um, and then outside Preston Jail. Uh, yesterday um, was a, a global frackdown. So it was a prearranged um, uh, day where there were protests actually right across the world. But of course, yesterday in the UK, uh, the focus was also on drawing attention to the plight of the three young men who have been uh, sentenced for their nonviolent direct action. Yes. And, uh, this, this industry, um, Ian, it's, uh, to put it lightly, it's, it's not sustainable, uh, economically. It, It relies on quite a high ceiling, doesn't it? In terms of, uh, unconventional oil or shale oil or even gas, Price needs to be quite high, doesn't it? Otherwise, it's just not profitable. Well, uh, the price has to be about where it is right now. In Brent yeah. trading at around eighty something dollars a barrel, um, so seventy five dollars a barrel is certainly an absolute minimum break even point for unconventional hydrocarbons. Um, but even then, yes, I mean it, it's somewhat dubious. So the bottom line is this is a Ponzi scheme. I mean, you know, fracking in the US. Is is a Ponzi scheme. I mean, you know, these companies are going out of business. Um, you know, they're having to declare Chapter Eleven or and, uh, or forced into just outright um, uh, um, bankruptcy. Um, it's not sustainable. Is, and, is that it, is, Ian? Is that because the banks are basic? Do you think there's kind of collusion on the kind of uh, let's say the, the on the high finance level between banks, corporations, and governments to basically take the hit? In other words, like you said, it's a Ponzi scheme. Roll this 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 company rolls rolls up and a new one rolls out, but because the U.S. needs to be basically pushing this supply around in order to, because I think there's a geopolitical agenda as well, Ian, in terms of the U.S. flexing its muscle uh, on on the energy front. Um, this is kind of determining its uh, you know new geopolitical position, as it were. But there's people who will take the hit for that. It might be banks. Uh, it might be, you know, whoever's you know, loan, tendering out the loans, for instance. Um, but it seems to me like there's there's a lot of failure in this industry. Oh, without any shadow of doubt. I mean, it, it wouldn't take anybody. Um, I mean, you know, anyone who uh, punches into their search engine, U.S. fracking bankruptcy, I mean, we'll see the plethora of companies that have just fallen by the wayside. And, of course, the banks just pick up those, those assets and then they just throw a bit more money at them to keep it going. You know, because every... Every well that's drilled just needs more more money. I mean, the the, com- the companies are not generating sufficient profitability to keep fracking wells because this is the problem. You know, the productivity of uh, a fracked well deteriorates very, very significantly over the first 12 months. And certainly within three years, the well would need to be fracked again. So 
you know, it's, it, it just needs this constant source of, uh, of funding. And uh, there's no question that, you know, it is um, the triumvirate of the, the financial institutions, the hydrocarbons companies and, um, and governments keeping it keeping it alive and the power of the hydrocarbons industry of course is enormous i mean it's actually just been reported that um you know the british uh, oil and gas industry is no longer a net contributor to taxes in this country because of the um tax relief and the rebates that the british government is awarding this industry as it comes into the twilight years, I mean, when I say twilight, I mean you know we're in the we're in the last thirty to fifty years of a hydrocarbon-driven economy. But the um, you know the industry is not going to um, uh, concede easily. And, and it's interesting you say about the geopolitical agenda because uh, I mean obviously the Saudis, uh, well OPEC, but primarily the Saudis have obviously been trying to find the point at which it is not really viable to initiate new unconventional hydrocarbon exploration. That's why they dropped the price of, of oil a few years ago, right down to $28 at one point. Now it's back up to, uh, about, uh, West, West Texas is back up to about 75 mm-hmm. um, and, and what they want to do is they just want to keep it at the point where, of course, they can, the Saudis can maximize their revenue from their oil sales, but they want to keep the price below the point at which it's really viable for the industry to, uh, to succeed in the U.S. or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And, but now, of course, literally within the last few days, uh, we've got Trump um, uh, announcing that he is considering what um, action to take following the uh, apparent murder of uh, Khashoggi in the in the Saudi embassy in um, in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Trump has stated that uh, if if the evidence points towards the Saudis uh, effectively. Um, assassinating uh, a, a dissident. I mean, this is a bit ironic when you think of all the dissidents against the US system that get assassinated. But, but that, that's another subject. But you know, here, here we've got uh, Trump saying, if the Saudis are found to be complicit in the murder of Khashoggi, then you know he's going to be uh, taking uh, uh, some action. Although he's not saying what that action might be. But you know, we know that Saudi is an incredibly important um, uh, customer for the US and the British arms industry. I mean, it, you know, in the UK, we, we should be acutely embarrassed, if not outright shocked, at the um, relationship between uh, the British arms industry and, and Saudi Arabia, and especially when one looks at you know what Saudi Arabia is uh, is of course sponsoring um, around the Middle East, and, uh, and of course in particular in uh, in Yemen. Mm. Yes, yes. So there, <laughs> there's a little bit of a conundrum there, Ian. You, uh, you know, Saudi needs to make a good profit to buy more arms, but uh, doesn't want to keep the oil um, high enough price high enough that it's going to uh, empower the competition from the unconventional uh, sector. So there's a little bit of a dance going on uh, there internationally. So that's interesting. Well, I will say, Ian, that the United States uh, imports way less 
Saudi oil now than they did uh, 20 years ago. Um, so I know, they, for sure. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, the, the U.S. is a net exporter. Yes. of hydrocarbons and um i mean we you know so for another time but i mean the u.s has always been capable of um of being self-sufficient in in hydrocarbons um it, but this was a deliberate strategy and of course it, we take this right back to uh it, the game plan of, of James A. Baker III and Henry Kissinger um, getting Nixon to drop the U.S. dollar from the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, gold had been oh, 35 bucks an ounce and, you know, for a long, long time. Um, and by removing, by removing um, the U.S. dollar from the gold standard and let, let it float, and then, of course, Kissinger and, and Baker used the 1973... Uh, Middle East war to uh, make a deal with Saudis uh, and in particular it was Sheikh Yamani who was a Saudi oil minister at the time and and obviously the US was very pro-Israel so what happened was um, uh, Kissinger and James A. Baker uh, went to meet with um, Yamani and put a proposition to him and they said, look, um, obviously, as far as the, the world is concerned, uh, Saudi-U.S. relations are not on a, a good point right now because of our support for Israel in the, in the war. So here's a proposition for you. We would like you to increase the price of oil by 400%. And Sheikh Yamani's initial reaction was basically, you what? Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course he hadn't heard the catch and the catch was that he wanted the price of oil increased by 400% but he also wanted OPEC to decree that all future oil trades would be in US dollars That's right. so this, this was how the globalists manipulated the fiat currency because it was now a fiat currency because it wasn't linked to gold to become the global reserve currency. Backed and by oil. Backed by oil. Yeah, that's why it's called black gold. You yeah. know, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I've heard, you know, um, academics and um, other commentators say there's no relationship between the price of oil and the price of gold. This is so incredibly naive, it's almost embarrassing. If you actually <laughs> take a look at over the last 60-odd years, the average price of a barrel of oil has been 7.61% of an ounce of gold. Uh, you know, obviously there's a little bit of fluctuation either side of that, but the average, and I mean, that's why it's so, I can make it so accurate, 7.61%. Because, you know, whether you've actually got gold in the ground or whether you've got oil in the ground, it's the same net result. Mm-hmm. I.e., you know, you, you have wealth generating resource you know, beneath um, beneath the feet. So um, the Saudis, of course, then started selling oil in dollars. Saudi had a massive influx of dollars, and as did all the other OPEC countries. So when you've got a whole bunch of dollars, where's the most likely place that you're going to spend them? 
Are you going to put it in a city bank in uh, New York City, like uh, uh, well, t- like Tali or Bintalal? <laughs> yeah, um, but you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be spending it on U.S. products. So, and, tre- and treasury bills and treasury bills yeah yeah so you know i mean this is why you know it, from 1973 until you know well certainly over 25 years or so to the end of the 20th century um u.s manufacturing was booming because it had this captive market of all of these company of countries who were awash with u.s dollars and rather than sort of lose on the exchange rate just to spend them at, at source so that's why when you go around, when you drive around Saudi or Kuwait or any of the other OPEC countries, I mean, all of the, um, all of the most of the vehicles that you see are, uh, are U.S. produced vehicles. And um, uh, it, it's almost like a, a mini, mini America. It is. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. That, that's that. And, and by the way, how do we know this is true? How do we know that what I've just told you about Kissinger and James A. Baker um, meeting with Sheikh Kimani and putting this proposition um, forward. How do we know it's fact? Because that's what Sheikh Kimani revealed in his autobiography. And, yeah. and of course, it, it's not challenged because it's true. By the way, there is a little bit of an aside to that because um, Yamani went to, this is before the uh, revolution in Iran, of course. So Yamani went to the Shah of Iran, who at the time, of course, was um, uh, uh, an integral player within OPEC. Mm-hmm. So Yamani goes to the Shah of Iran and says, hey, uh, listen, you know, those fucking Americans, um, you know, supporting uh, Israel, um, you know, we need to teach them a lesson. So, um, you know, we've got this idea where uh, we're thinking of increasing the uh, the price by 400 percent. And and of course, the reaction of the Shah, um, who was very pro-American, of course, the reaction of the Shah was, um, well, hang on a second. You know, we can't do that because the Americans will never agree. And eventually, Yamani had to admit to the Shah that it was actually Kissinger and Baker's suggestion. Yeah, was their deal? Yeah, yes. and, that, and so that 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 that's that's how we got into the um, uh, global reserve currency being the U.S. dollar. And and just to sort of bring that full circle, and of course, one of the reasons that Saddam, well, one of the, one of the crucial reasons, and of course, um, um, Gaddafi. Uh, well, uh, the primary reasons that they were removed from power in their respective countries was because they were trading oil in currencies other than the US dollar. You know, Saddam was trading oil in euros. And despite the fact he was only limited to about 600,000 barrels uh, for essential supplies, nonetheless, the fact that he was trading in euros did have an impact on the dollar euro exchange rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when um, George Bush famously flew on to the U.S. aircraft carrier uh, after the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And, and there was a big banner behind him that said, Mission Accomplished. And, and he announced that the war in Iraq was over, which, of course, it wasn't. But he wasn't talking about the military campaign. When he said Mission Accomplished, what he was actually referring to was that from that point forward, Iraqi oil was once again being traded in U.S. dollars. Mm, yeah. And then Gaddafi was uh, taken out because Gaddafi had uh, stated his intention, uh, one, to establish um, an Arab-African um, uh, sort of super state. Mm-hmm. Um, but his primary 
crime was to announce that he was going to trade Libyan oil in gold. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, it was a gold dinar, uh, basically a gold-backed currency. Uh, totally exactly. unheard of. Totally unheard of. <laughs> exactly. A yeah. totally total anathema uh, to those who want to drive an economy based on uh, fiat currency. Whilst, whilst, of course, uh, I mean, it's a, another subject, but, you know, obviously by creating this sort of fiat economy, then you get people into such massive debt that mm-hmm. ultimately, of course, you then you then effectively, uh, when they go into bankruptcy, you take control of the hard assets. Yes, whole countries, Ian. Whole countries. Exactly. Because, because, like you said, as soon as every every barrel of oil would be bought and sold in dollars, that means every country around the world, from Uganda to South Africa to India, has to then have dollar reserve counts to to do transactions in oil. And in terms of the sellers getting paid in dollars, uh, and then that that's they're buying treasury bills because that's a good store uh, store of wealth with a with a good maturation return. That's financing the U.S. military buildup during the Cold War, uh, the latter part of the Cold War. The U.S. military machine, the deficit spending, was financed by all of these people trading in dollars, basically. Exactly, that's exactly and right. That's the secret to the American empire. You've just revealed actually. <laughs> a lot of people yeah, don't yeah. know that. <laughs> and um, uh, I think, you know, probably one of the um, uh, more obscure works of uh, Carol Quigley were, was his um, uh, analysis and insight into the Anglo-American establishment. And, you know, he didn't necessarily have a real problem with it, but, you know, he, he was at least um, one of the first. In fact, it was probably because he didn't have a real problem with it that he had the the opportunity to uh, uh, research and actually publish his uh, uh, his books, but so the Anglo-American uh, establishment uh, is uh, an excellent read for people who want to see, you know, really where the origins of uh, of this obscenity uh, came about. But you know, it's getting it's getting worse, Patrick, because um, in fact, uh, I think. Well, I know you're going to be speaking at an event that we've got coming up in uh, in London on December the second. That's right. And and the the theme of this event is democracy in chains, and it, it's yeah you know, the speakers are going to be coming at it from different angles. But I mean, ostensibly, you know, it, it can no longer be dismissed as a conspiracy theory that the corporations are working to demolish what people believe to be a a democratic country and and replace it with what they term as freedom for the global corporatists to literally rape and pillage the resources of any country that they, they target. And when I say rape and pillage the resources, that includes the human resources and, and what we're seeing systematically around the uh, supposed developed world, you know, is we're seeing um, social services such as healthcare um, and emergency services, they are being decimated uh, because basically the corporatists want everything privatized. They don't want anything in state ownership. They literally want to, to, well, ultimately, in their ideal situation, they would abolish 
any any pretense of uh, parliamentary democracy completely. But you know, on the basis that they know that they're not going to be embraced by the wider community, they do it through stealth. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's the terminology that they use as well. So, you know, reform. We're going to reform the NHS. But reform in their vocabulary means destroy. You know, yeah. we're going to reform policing. It means destroy. You know, we're going we're going to modernize. That means destroy and enable the corporations to um, uh, to effectively take absolute control. And and so, you know, when we have this event in London, um, I, I know that, uh, you know, for some people there, they're going to say, yep, well, we've known this all along. But for others, you know, they may have had pieces of the jigsaw. But I think that on that day, we are literally going to be able to show how over the past 30 to 40 years, you know, what is now happening has been very, very carefully scripted. And up until now, it's pretty much been uh, only visible to those who do uh, their own sort of political analysis. But, you know, what's happening now is they're getting to the point where they can no longer keep it uh, in stealth mode. And it's becoming more and more overt, more obvious. People are starting to see through the, the parliamentary speak. The, the new speakers, uh, as Brian Gerrish refers to it. And, and of course, once people do realise what's occurring, and especially as more and more people have up close and personal experience of, um, uh, of, of what's occurring, then, you know, they're not going to sit back and, um, and uh, take it lightly, which is why we have another issue which has to be addressed and unlike fracking, where, you know, I've been on this case for uh, a little over six years now, we don't have six years. And this is with the global 5G rollout. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we, just, so, we just got a minute left, Ian, so be be quick and then we're going to wrap it up as we have okay. uh, well, to go then, to uh, a break. Then, OK, then I would ask people to look at what occurred in the UK on Thursday in Gateshead when I was in court with Mark Steele, where the judge effectively lifted a gagging order on Mark Steele, preventing him from raising awareness of the dangers associated with 5G, and in particular, the uh, very, very serious negative health effects on the residents of Gateshead, where 5G has been uh, trial tested. 5G is a weapon. It's a military technology. It's battlefield interrogation technology that um, pretty much any independent EMF specialist is calling for a moratorium to prevent it being rolled out onto the uh, into the general public pending full and proper testing. Mm-hmm. And uh, all I would do is say, okay, I think we're at the clo- we're at the we're in the closing days of the anti-fracking campaign. We're on the we're on the cusp of a massive victory there, but uh, frankly. We have to get people motivated to do their research into 5G and the, uh, the damage that 5G will cause because the impact will be rapid and it will be potentially fatal. And if this goes ahead, 
then the global corporatists will have the ultimate control weapon literally at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, it is, a, it is a quite a high-tech uh, grid and uh, I dare say uh, not very good for overall health of uh, <clears throat> living species. Um, let's leave it there, but I think we'll, we'll have to have you back on the show to really get into that issue, Ian, uh, in, in depth uh, because it's very, very important. Um, and uh, just 20 seconds, I was going to ask you, in 20 seconds, tell us the difference because uh, everyone's saying fossil fuels, fossil fuels, all our politicians, all the pundits, and you're saying unconventional, or you're saying hydrocarbons. Um, are, are they wrong to say fossil fuels, and are you right to say hydrocarbons as the proper term for oil and gas? Listen, the, the Russians uh, have believed that um, hydrocarbons are um, manifested from deep in the bowels of the earth. They, they actually have a very, very different methodology for uh, both exploration and exploitation. And, and um, uh, they certainly do not buy in to hydrocarbons being fossil fuels. Some hydrocarbons may emanate from fossilized strata, but, um, you know, we're consuming hydrocarbons at the rate of 90 million barrels per day 90 million wow. barrels per day that's a hell of a lot of fossils that, uh, <laughs> yeah, <I'll say. laughs> so consequently i choose my terminology very carefully i never ever use the term fossil fuels i always use the term hydrocarbons because uh, whether fossil, whether sorry, whether hydrocarbons are fossil fuels, that is simply a hypothesis. Whether they are abiotic, that is simply a hypothesis. The bottom line is nobody really knows. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good that's a good answer. Yeah. So we're still trying to figure that one out. Hopefully, we will soon in this lifetime. But um, thank you, Ian, for a, an incredibly informative segment uh, on so many fronts. Um, we're we're happy to see the progress on the anti fracking community, uh, and also more information on the event uh, coming up on December second. You'll go to Ian R. Crane's website. There's a link on his uh, to his website on our show page right now. You can uh, click I, I, through. I Patrick, at the moment, the event is only on alternativeview.co.uk. Ah, uh, uh, I see. Okay. So, alternative view. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to fix up a link to that as well. So, okay. uh, after the show. But, um, yeah, do get, get along to that event. That's going to be in London, right? It's in London. It's at the Crown Plaza Hotel, which is mm-hmm. literally right opposite Gloucester Road Station on the Circle Line. So very easily uh, accessible. Um, it's a it's a one day event, but uh, as with all um, AV events, the speakers will be accessible for informal discussion uh, throughout the day. Mm. Yeah, it should be very, very good. Very good. Great location as well. Central London, easy to get to in and out. So uh, do get along to that. We'll we'll be promoting that more uh, in the coming weeks as well. But uh, thank you again, Ian R. Crane, uh, for coming on this week. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. We'll speak again soon. 
Okay, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Enar Crane, also the host of Humanity versus Insanity, also on Fracking Nightmare, two shows that Ian does. You can go catch those on YouTube as well uh, and see his work on a on a week, almost a weekly basis. And do follow him on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and if you want to get involved in this movement, uh, this social movement that Ian was describing, this activist movement, you can do. Uh, there's plenty of groups in your local areas. Just go type it in. You'll find somebody that you can link up with. Uh, it's a worthwhile cause. We're going to take a short break uh, for the final segment of Overdrive uh, with our roving correspondent for culture and sport, Basil Valentine, will join us on the other side. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stick around. We'll be right back. Fool me once. Shame on, shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again. Yo, this is Russell Jordan, a.k.a. the Prime Artist. You're listening to the Sunday Wire with Patrick Henningsen. Alternate Current Radio. Keep it current. Stay locked. 